Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Kim Moody, CEO of Moody's Tax and Moody's Private Client, which are professional services firms focusing on tax and law. I have the privilege of knowing Kim for well over a decade. I've watched as he's built his company into a top-tier boutique firm advising on tax and financial matters, primarily for high net worth, entrepreneurs, and executives. In our interview, he provides some context about the size of his firm and who he and his team are serving. We discuss a number of things like where people can get caught offside with tax. We use the examples of executives with complex compensation packages and athletes who, to Kim's point, are some of the most poorly advised professionals out there. From tax, we move into his views on leadership and his ups and downs with building his firm. Then we get into some topics like politics, philosophies, and even diversity and inclusion, and importantly, meritocracy. What I really appreciate about Kim is he's a highly intelligent professional who is down-to-earth, purpose-driven, and willing to express himself. With death and taxes, the only two certainties in our world, this episode is certainly worth your time. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Kim, welcome to the show. Hey, Corey. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me on. Yes, absolutely. We have somewhat of a, a long history in, in where we met each other and the paths we've chosen. I've really admired the work you've done with building your, your firm in the world of tax and private client services. And I'm thrilled that we're having this interview, well, to be honest. Corey. For our guests, I think the best place to start is uh, with a bit of history or a bit of an introduction about yourself. So I'm going to hand it over to you and We'll use that to build our conversation. Sure. What do you want to know? My height, my weight, or hair color? What do you want? <laughs> Tell us everything. <laughs> Tell us it all. Well, I've been, uh, as career-wise at least anyhow, I've been chartered professional accountant, as they call it now. I used to be chartered accountant for almost 30 years. But I've been in tax for about uh, 27 of that. Uh, it's approaching 30 years. And, and so... I've always enjoyed the study of tax and building firms and admiring small business owners and being an entrepreneur myself. And so it's, uh, it's been a long journey, but it's been a fun journey. Married with four kids, celebrated 30 years of marriage last year in 2022. And I can't believe my wife puts up with me and she's a good lady. Four boys. And am I allowed to swear, uh, Corey, on this podcast? Uh, they're all shitheads, but, but, <laughs> but love them to death. And yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Love the study of tax. It kind of gets me out of bed in the morning and, and it's a difficult topic, but sure. We'll talk more about that later. Yeah, for sure. We will. It's, I think, I think you understate yourself a lot, but I appreciate the sense of humor as well. One thing that I read, and this was on your profile that this was a quote from you, people who know me know that I'm only really good at one thing, tax. I'm the guy who carries the tax act everywhere, dinner with my wife, hockey games to bed. At least I started to look a bit cooler once it was available on an iPad. And I love the quote for those listening and actually those who are high net worth individuals, those who are operating companies, they, I think they recognize how deeply complex our tax system is and 
when you start to go cross-border in which you've really, I think, built a bit of a specialty around Moody's tax and client, private client services, it's a, it's a really in-depth and complicated world. So I want to recognize that for you because I don't think... I don't think you have. Maybe I can just be your your promoter. <laughs> well, I'm happy to have you as my promoter. Can I tell you a little secret about yes. that quote? So look at this. Watch. You see how how short I am now? And then yes. all of a sudden, so guess what I'm standing on? The Income Tax Act. The Canadian Tax Act. So it's that thick. It's by far the largest statute. The reason I'm standing on it, of course, is I'm trying to look taller. And, and uh, <laughs> well, it, it is, yeah. it's by far the most complex statute in Canada. And I often use a quote from Albert Einstein that, and he's attributed to saying this, whether or not he truly said it is, is a debate, but he's attributed to saying that there's nothing more complex than the income tax. And I actually think that's correct. It, it doesn't mean that there's nothing more important than the income tax. I mean, certainly physics and medicine and other important topics like economics are important, but income tax, I, I've never encountered something more difficult. Physics, mm. you know, when I studied physics, which I loved it in high school and early, you know, undergrad, loved it. It's not that complicated in the whole scheme of things. Uh, I mean, wow. I'm being facetious, of course, right? But it, tax is just major, major complicated. So yeah, I enjoy that. Yeah. It's very interesting. And I've always viewed it as a chess game. And especially for those who who have tax problems. And hopefully there's those who are in a good position who recognize they have tax problems and they work with somebody like yourself, professionals who can navigate the the system. And then there's those who unfortunately fall into tax problems. And that's uh, probably, that's certainly where you don't want to be. Can you for context for our listeners, can you give us context of the clients that you work with and and how, yeah, who are these people? Yeah, mo- most of them are successful entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs or C-suite people that have either complex income packages or complex asset packages that, you know, they're not able to easily navigate the tax system themselves. And so for the entrepreneur, I mean, there's nothing more complex than, than an entrepreneur's life. And you know that full well, Corey. There's lots of juggling going on. And, you know, it's a pretty rare day that I found an entrepreneur that knows uh, tax very, very well. And so, mm-hmm. so our clients tend to be those that need sophisticated advice to help navigate their day-to-day operations. You know, are they, are they being efficient? Do they have good legal structures to carry out their operations? Oh, they're expanding into the states. What well, what are some of the considerations they need to do? Oh, and we can help them with that and, and optimize. So that encompasses a lot. And then, you know, the C-suite or the complex income, you know, like professional athletes, professional athletes, you know, with respect are some of the most poorly advised uh, on the tax side I've ever run across in my career. And then we do a lot of estate planning. You know, what do you do with this wealth? You know, it's not mm-hmm. as simple as just handing it to your to your kids. Or if you have no kids, you know, handing it to nieces or nephews or other loved ones or maybe charities, it's, it comes with a lot of, a lot of complications and and especially if you're dealing with assets around the world. And so those tend to be the, you know, from a broad stroke, the clients that we, that we deal with. And I can tell you lately, as we were talking offline, Corey, a lot of the clients that we are dealing with want to leave Canada permanently. And that provides a whole bunch of other challenges as well. So I hope I've answered your question, but that uh, it's a pretty broad area, and we restrict our practice to just private clients and anything they they have. We you know we could certainly compete in the public market mm. space, but we just we don't want to. Yeah, you, you found your niche, and I, I do want to get into the discussion about why people are leaving Canada, high net worth individuals. But to build on the clients you you work with, I've always been very curious about. Well, one, yes, as an entrepreneur, you know, I'm always looking at these things and trying to balance just operating our business and continuing to bring money and, and profits in the door with preserving those profits and finding ways to, to then redeploy the earnings that we have without handing over a large chunk to the tax man. But when, when it comes to, and I think this would be interesting to our listeners, one is for executives who have compensation plans. And then maybe you can also speak to, to athletes 
who have their compensation plans. Because at first blush, I would assume that if you're making a half million dollars a year as an executive or a million dollars a year as, as a paycheck for your service to a sports team or to a corporation, does that not just get cut in half and go to the government? And what are some of the problems that you're seeing clients run into and where should they start with questioning if they've got good tax advice? Yeah, there's a lot to your question there, but just to respond to the easy one. Yeah. A lot of people think that professional athletes, for example, or executives like a CEO, you know, they just take their income and half goes to the government. Well, the first question is which government, you know, if they're dealing uh, like an athlete in Canada and the U S and various provinces and various States, how much of the piece of that pie goes to those various governments? And in some cases, municipal governments in the states charge tax as well. And so those are those are complications in and of themselves. But where you really get you know challenging issues is signing bonuses, like how are those taxed cross border? And then estate planning for professional athletes. You know, unfortunately, the statistics on many professional athletes are that you know, they spend their money quite quickly, which is not my area of expertise. I'm not a financial advisor, but, you know, to the fortunate ones that take good care of their money and have money to do, uh, you know, at post-retirement because their careers tend to be rather short, you know, what should they be looking at? Where should they be locating both from a lifestyle and tax perspective uh, after their playing career is over? And with CEOs, uh, just switching to that for a second, or any C-suite where you're dealing with complex remuneration packages like stock options or deferred uh, share units or stock units or restricted stock units or, you know, there's a whole alphabet soup of type of compensation plans that are out there. And how, if you're a traveling executive or U.S. citizen living in Canada or vice versa, a Canadian resident who's now working in the States, how do those, you know, various compensation packages how are they taxed in Canada and the U.S. as an example, which is where we do most of our work? And so those are really, really complicated answers, which are not things that you can easily find on Google or ChatGBT. And so, and so that's so uh, that's where it's uh, it provides a lot of challenges. Yes, yes, I imagine so. And my thinking about tax is it's a hell of a lot more expensive if you're caught on the the wrong side of it. And so it's you need to be you know preemptive, if you will. You need to be preemptive and proactive, right? And that's why, you know, a lot of what we do is, first of all, understand the facts. You got to understand the facts before you can give advice. And the facts can be pretty detailed. And then understand the objectives. Well, what are you trying to do here? I mean, besides the obvious of minimizing tax and deferring tax. And then from there, determine what's the most appropriate, you know, in the industry, we call it filing position. What's the most appropriate? without crossing any lines. And and then from there, uh, make sure it's appropriately reported. And so it's, and all those steps involve a lot of brain damage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of calories, cognitive calories used. How about when it comes to these taxation issues, how much gray area is there? Tons. Because, yes. Okay. I ask for, you know, out of, for those who find themselves, you know, in with a tax advisor, you know, how much should they be comfortable with and how do you approach stepping into the gray? Yeah, I'll answer your question in two parts. The first is just I'll answer the question in terms of how much gray there is, which that's the easy answer I've already given. There's tons, but I'll give you a specific example. And then second, I'll uh, maybe go into a bit of a rant if you're okay with letter rip. about you know, tax advisors in general. And so the first, you know, the first part of the answer is that, that, yeah, there's, there's lots of gray. I mean, in Canada, the statute, as I already showed you is about that thick, right? It's, that's the Canadian income tax act in the United States, the internal revenue code and regulations are massive. I mean, if I was to stand on top of those books, you know, I would go way outside the screen and I'd probably hit the roof. And so, you know, the United States tries to take a detailed mm. approach to trying to define rules and regulations, whereas Canada takes a much more less detailed approach and it lets the courts decide if there's an interpretive issue. And so here's an example. 
uh, the very first section of the Income Tax Act, you know, Section 2, defines who pays tax. And, and it basically says that a resident of Canada pays tax on their worldwide income. And if that's not exactly the sentence, but it, that's basically what it says. But is there a definition of resident? No. There's no definition of resident. And so now there is a deemed residency rule where if you're in Canada for 183 days or more, you're deemed resident for the entire year. But outside of that, there's no definition. So you have to rely on the courts. And the courts, thankfully, have looked at this issue in 1948, the Supreme Court of Canada decision. And so if you're not a tax specialist, which kind of leads into my, my rant in a second here, you won't know that. You'll just rely on rules of thumb or what you think you know the answer to be. And so that's the danger is that if the rules are not just clearly spelled out, like in the United States, there's lots of rules, then you better know what the answer is when it's not clearly set out in the statute in Canada, for example, the Income Tax Act. And so that's just one small example, but a common example of how much gray there is in, you know, in the Income Tax Act. Another more common one is uh, you're only allowed to deduct reasonable expenses. Okay, but there's no definition of reasonable. So if I hire Corey Cleveland and pay him a million dollars just because I like him, can I deduct that million dollars? Because it would, uh, is that reasonable in the circumstances? Yeah, and the more common issue besides the crazy example I'm giving is, a, is salaries to family members, right? If I pay a salary to a family member, is that reasonable in the circumstances? And in many cases, the answer would be no, because would I pay an arm's length person that same amount of money? And so there's lots of stuff like that, Corey, and you know, experience matters. So to lead into my rant, <laughs> in Canada, anybody can call themselves a tax specialist. And so if you're an accountant and you know, you're out there doing uh, services for private clients, it's only in your best interest as a practitioner to say that you know tax because tax sells, right? In the legal profession, there's not a lot of lawyers that are tax lawyers. There's probably, and I'm being generous, 2% of lawyers in the, the overall population of lawyers practice tax. Now, certainly the tax lawyers in Canada that I'm, you know, that I trip circles with, including the people in our firm, they're phenomenal practitioners, but there's not a lot of lawyers that know taxes, which means that most of the practice of tax is dominated by the accounting profession, which if it's unregulated, meaning that anybody that can call themselves a tax specialist, well, that doesn't provide, you know, the consumer a good angle to navigate as to who they should go to, to get really specialized advice. And so a lot of entrepreneurs and practitioners just rely on their day-to-day accountant. Unfortunately, if you're dealing with an accountant who doesn't want to recognize the limitations of what they can do, then you can get the clients in real trouble. And unfortunately, we see that more often than not. Thankfully, there's lots of accountants that do recognize their differences, or sorry, their, you know, their shortfalls and comings on tax. They don't want to practice it. And so they'll deal with people like us. But I've been advocating for, you know, a tax specialist designation uh, like they have in the UK and Australia and Ireland for years and years. So in any event, it's very frustrating because the consumer can't actively, you know, ascertain who is a tax specialist and who is not. So it's been one of my bugaboos for years. Yeah. Well, I think the the advice that comes from that is making sure to ask appropriate questions and get a sense as the consumer if your accountant's out of their depth and potentially seek other advice. Yeah, the difficulty of that, Corey, is how does the average consumer do that? Of hey, course. Hey, accountant, do you know tax? Of course I do. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> you know, yes. <laughs> yeah. There's no independent arbiter, right? And so that's the frustrating. Where The United States is different. Although they have the same kind of issue with CPAs who do a lot of work, at least in the United States, the lawyers that practice tax, which there's a lot of them uh, as compared to Canada, you know, kind of the entry level is the LLM in tax. If you have an LLM in tax, that's usually the entrance. And so if you want to go to get specialized advice in the States, typically you're looking for an LLM in tax as a lawyer, at least. So anyhow, there you go. I could go on and on about it. I wrote a book about it. So that's true. That's true. In fact, I, uh, I grabbed it on my Kindle yesterday. <laughs> 
Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. And so I overnight didn't have time to read it, but it's now on the list. So thanks for that. There you go. I want to ask about where your passion for tax came from, and and I get a sense there's a a passion and a, and a belief to fight for the entrepreneur and the citizen in 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 your you know in your persona there. But where did that passion for the for tax come from? Maybe uh, I'll answer that. And I think the first passion comes for entrepreneurs. I mean, I've, you know, my parents and I write when you read my book, which won't take you long, by the way, it's a pretty breezy read. You know, I give, a, I give a history of my, you know, my upbringing and my parents were both entrepreneurs and my dad in particular, you know, was a bit of a serial entrepreneur. And, you know, and I saw the energy and passion that he put into the business. And I always admired that. And same with my mom. And, and so, but seeing how much, seeing how much they struggled, especially with tax you know, my dad, because he knew I was strong in mathematics, would always get me to help him out with some of the basic bookkeeping stuff as an 11 and 12 year old. Mm. And then one day he came, <laughs> he, he came mm. and handed each of our, each of my siblings, including me, and there were six of us, he handed us 500 bucks each. And I thought, holy geez, that's a lot of money because this is back in the 1970s. And turns out it was his accountant's advice to pay us salaries and hand the actual, you know, cash to the kids. And so that got my brain thinking, well, what the hell is going on here? So I figured it out at an early age as to what was going on. And then figuring, hmm, that's quite interesting. And then I know I'm making this a very long answer, but there is a point here. So, uh, but then one day I go into our freezer and there's ice cream pail bucket full of, of $20 bills. And I'm thinking, what the hell? And well, I'm going to take some of this money. <laughs> now I ended up giving, being the honest guy that I am. I told my mom that I took 20 bucks and she was pretty upset with me, but that, that was my first lesson in tax evasion. Um, mm. Right. Because my dad had a go-kart business and it was pretty much all cash based. And so in order to avoid the accounting system, he would put it in ice cream buckets, not report it. But then, of course, put it in the freezer in order to protect from like a potential fire or a flood, right? That's classic tax evasion. And, and so I told this story many times uh, because that was back in the 1970s. Mm. And I'm pretty sure my dad's okay now. I don't think he'll be prosecuted for that. But but <laughs> long story short, that that's criminal. And so, I, so that kind of started my passion for both the entrepreneur and for the uh, understanding tax. And then understanding that tax is a real specialty on its own. When I realized that in my undergrad degree, it was like, wow, I can, I can really make a difference. And this does make a huge impact. It has a huge impact economically. And wow, tax policy does drive a lot of major decisions. And, and so I just got fascinated with the complexity and the intricacies and the intersections uh, in, in entrepreneurs' lives and how important it is in Canada and how important the entrepreneur is to the the success of a community. And so that's a long-winded answer to your question. And But long story short is I appreciate the passion, the energy, the importance, and the complexity of the entrepreneur and tax policy. Let's use that to lead into a further discussion about Canada, tax system, and issues you're seeing daily and on the horizon. And one of them that came up was the fact that high net worth people are now leaving Canada. So what is happening there? And I think the the underlying point there is that this is not good. We need entrepreneurs within our economy. That is how it thrives. But what is happening there? What's happening overall is, let me put this as a bit of an example. So I've been practicing tax for the better part of 30 years as a tax specialist for the last you know, 27-ish. In all my years of practicing tax, you know, the, the number of cases that I had was about a dozen on, you know, people leaving Canada. And most of those were lifestyle driven. They wanted to be closer to their kids or they wanted to retire somewhere. And most of them were going to the United States because similar culture, similar language, but better weather, et cetera, et cetera. And fast forward to 2015 in Canada, and we had a new federal government and huge increases in personal taxes. And then in Alberta, or my home province of Alberta, you know, we had a unexpected socialist provincial government, which 
raised provincial tax rates by uh, another 5%. And so we had we had significant personal tax rate increases across Canada, but in particular Alberta. And so that was a real shock to the system. Fast forward, you know, to COVID and to, you know, Canada is going to introduce a wealth tax and, you know, the modern monetary theory of economics being shoved in our face by daily articles. And, you know, it was like, you know, governments can spend, spend, spend. There, there's no worry about deficits. You get the bright side of the Canadian population and the wealthy side, which all of a sudden are concerned. They know that this kind of free-flowing money and tax rate increases and tax the rich mantra just can't last forever. Or if they, in other words, there'll be behavioral responses. And so that's what we've seen is significant behavioral responses to these real attacks on economic and tax policy, which, you know, a lot of it is very detrimental to entrepreneurs. And so, so that the tax policy and economic policy responses really have been kind of the trip over. In other words, many of these entrepreneurs, if they love Canada, Canada's their home, they're grateful to Canada for the success that it's provided them, but they're worried about the future. They really do like the weather somewhere else. Oh man, the tax stuff, you know what? Let's just pull the trigger. And so it's kind of that straw breaks the camel's back. It's usually not the tax that's the main driver. I've had maybe, I don't know, one or two that's been the main driver, but not many, Corey. As the old saying goes, tax tax is wagging the tail of the dog, and then there's usually a problem. And so we've so what we've seen is tax is just basically that final push. So to end my story here, how many cases have we worked on with wealthy entrepreneurs leaving Canada in the last say five years, and in particular the last three? Certainly well over five hundred. Whoa. And now some of them are small. Most of them are in the you know twenty to fifty million dollar range. There's been some real big ones, you know, that have left Canada under our watch. But as I lectured to a, a university class a couple of weeks ago, I said, "How many of you think that we should be taxing the rich more?" <laughs> and this was in a, <laughs> a fourth year uh, undergrad BCom class, and it was a camera, it was a finance class, and many but about. Out of a group of 40 students, about four of them put up, were brave enough to put up their hands. And so I said, do you know how much the top 20%, and I'll test you, Corey, what does the top 20% of income earners pay as a percentage of the overall tax revenues, personal tax revenues in Canada? The top 20% income earners, how much as a percentage of the overall tax do they pay? Is it not somewhere close like Forty percent or something like that. Sixty-one percent. Sixty-one percent. Yeah. Now let me ask you this: What does the bottom twenty percent pay? Two. <laughs> I'm not sure. Zero point eight percent. Wow. Now, now having said that, should you be sympathetic to some of that result on the bottom twenty percent? Sure, right? Because there's going to be disabled people, there's going to be retired people, and older, and you know, so long story short is, is there's good societal public policy reasons why, you know, the wealthier should support some of the 20%. But that's a pretty big shift, right? If you're to dig into that 0.8%, one could debate whether or not that's appropriate. So when I ran through some of the mathematics like that, and how much it would take if you have one entrepreneur, let's say one entrepreneur who's worth $100 million, who generates just pick a number. Let's say they generate 5% a year on their hundred million, either through jobs or just pure investment income. Let's, let's keep it simple and say investment income. So they're generating $5 million of taxable income. How many uh, entrepreneurs like that would it take to replace if that person left Canada yes. with $5 million of taxable income, let's just call it two and a half million dollars of tax revenues to the government. How many so-called low income or middle-income taxpayers is it going to take to replace that one? You know, there was a lot of eyes opened when we walked through some of that logic. And that's the unfortunate part that most Canadians don't get. So, anyhow, there's another rant for yeah. you. It's well, a valuable one at that. Uh, a lot of questions come to mind here. Why do you think our government 
doesn't see this? Is, does it just come down to straight greed and corruption within themselves to to want to have more and take more? Or do you think the, the economics and of your argument, they're aware of them? Oh, they're aware of it for sure. Maybe some of the average politicians don't get that, obviously. But, but unfortunately today, like a lot of history, politics is ideologically driven. Right. And in a classic socialist or communist government, but let's just call it socialist, you know, it's progressive values that matter more than economics. It's the priorities. Right. Mm. So it's more important to make sure that the progressive ideology happens because the economy is just there. And whereas, you know, a conservative like myself, you know, is more conservative leanings fiscally. And, you know, it's the economy and the care of that economy and all public mm-hmm. policy like tax policy that allows for benefits to occur. Yeah. And unfortunately, the ideological, it's its growing in terms of, hmm. you know, I hate it when people call conservatives cons. You know, it, yeah. it, it's just such silly, silly stuff, right? Or or people call progressive liberals libtards. You know, that, that kind of childhood, it's so, it, it's so non-progressive. What's the word? It's just schoolyard stuff, right? Instead of respecting each ideology and maybe coming towards the middle, like I think Western democracies have been successful historically over time to do. Instead, the drive is this way, right? And mm-hmm. and, and so I, I do think that's part of the problem. Do you think social media has played into this? No question. Uh, yeah. No it, question. it feels like when I look back that – you know, 10, 15 years ago when Facebook first came out and, and social media was a part of this, we didn't seem to have these issues or it wasn't so, you know, people weren't so headline driven. But now it's like you read a headline and you have an opinion and that opinion is against someone. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'll give you an example. My own LinkedIn account, my personal LinkedIn account, you know, for LinkedIn, I've got a decent amount of followers. <laughs> it's surprising that people actually want to follow me, but uh, I tend to post three things. One, tax topics, because that's my area of expertise. Two, some sort of leadership topic, because I love the study of leadership. Yeah. And then three, something that, you know, politics as it relates to leadership or tax. You know, I'm never going to put a post on that says, I hate Justin Trudeau. Well, who, <laughs> who cares? That's just ridiculous. But I will comment politically on something that involves those other two topics, either tax policy yeah. or leadership. And so anytime I post just a pure tax topic, the algorithms don't really like it that much. And so you know, it doesn't spin it. So I'll maybe get 10,000 views, you know, something like that. Um, if I put on something purely leadership, you know, I might get similar 10,000 views. But holy God, if I put on something political that involves tax or leadership, mm. 50,000 views. 150,000 views, which which tells you, in my view, this is just my simple observation, is that the algorithms are triggered. They like anything that is divisive uh, or can encourage views. Oh, politics? Oh, yeah. Let, let's, let's encourage that, uh, the spread of that. It's ridiculous, in my view. Hmm. I have one. For our listeners, I definitely encourage you to follow Kim Moody find him on LinkedIn because I think the work he put out, the pieces he put out are very thought. And I think they're, they're critical, but constructive. I'm just going to interrupt our interview here to offer up our free masterclass on investor marketing. If you're interested in learning about the key strategies and tactics for attracting, engaging, and retaining investors, this masterclass is for you. It covers everything you need to know about how to build a successful investor marketing program for your public company. If you're a CEO, CFO, or IR pro, be sure to sign up at creativereturn.ca slash masterclass. Your investor marketing program should be an accretive use of capital, so be sure to access it at creativereturn.ca slash masterclass or click the link in the show notes. I am curious, though, how you've been, why you've committed yourself so much to social media. Because, I mean, you have a lot of things on your plate and you don't just go through a, through a quick comment. You take a lot of time to put out these posts. Why do you invest your time there? I think you know my background in history is I like giving back, right? And so I've given back to 
you know, the tax profession with various leadership uh, positions and what have you. And so my LinkedIn is very similar driven. I give a shit. Mm. You know, I, I do care about my country. I care about my profession. I care about my family. And it's certainly not in that order, by the way. <laughs> I care about my family, <laughs> number one, my country, my profession. I care about my teammates. And so when you see the easy manipulation that's happening, you know, somebody's got to call this shit out, mm. right? And, and you're not going to get it from the big four accounting firms who are, you know, walking the line. And they're basically what they say on their social media account is nothing. Uh, you're not going to get it from big law. You're not going to get it from. And so, you know, a number of years ago, I thought, hmm, well, I know I'm only one person, but maybe I'll just say what I think. And, you know, in the whole scheme of things, it gets me in trouble sometimes, but at least I can feel good going home and looking in the mirror and saying, I'm trying to do my part to get back and to yeah. cut bullshit. And yeah. whether it makes a difference or not, I don't know, Corey, but but I'm hopeful that I'm contributing in a small way to a better Canada. Yes, yes. That... I appreciate it because to me, I feel like the posts you put out there are very aligned with your values. And, you know, maybe people disagree with you, but that's fine. Let's have good dialogue. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about, you touched on leadership. And yeah. with Moody's, you have Moody's Tax and you have Moody's Private Client. I've seen you build this firm up over the last, I think, maybe 10, 15 years. And it's been a really interesting thing to watch from afar. Can you discuss your leadership and time management and how this has changed as you've grown a professional services firm, which could not have been an easy lift? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. And you're right, it hasn't been easy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but thankfully, I've had you know good partners over the years, some not so good. I've had certainly the uh, the strength of my family and support, especially my wife. And But years ago, and I, I think you probably know this, Corey, years ago, when I started my practice, my, my initial practice in 1994, you know, <laughs> I thought I'd like most doctors are, or lawyers, doctors are notorious for this. They'll put out a little ad and all of a sudden they think they're an entrepreneur and they think that patients will flock to them. And, you know, kudos to doctors because there's more patients than there are doctors so they can get away with their lame business building. I, I, think, <laughs> doctors, I think doctors in particular uh, and lawyers are close behind are some of the worst entrepreneurs you'll ever see. Yes. And, I call them the Western entrepreneurs. Yeah. And a lot of them are, a lot of them are. And so, and so when I first started my practice in 94, I, I felt very similar. It's like, Hey, I'm a smart guy. Look at this. I got my designation and, and people are going to come to me. Well, all of a sudden people weren't coming to me or the work that I got wasn't so interesting. <laughs> so, mm. so, I was lamenting to a buddy of mine about that and said, Jesus, uh, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing when it comes to building my business. And he said, hmm. And I said, do you know where I could get some like entrepreneurial training? Because certainly there's, there's nothing in undergrad that taught you how to be a, you know, people mistakenly think like my kids, for example, when they're looking at schools, they thought that if they be, you know, went and got their bachelor commerce degree, that they're going to be in, you know, well-suited to be an entrepreneur. Uh, no, no, it'll teach you how to be an entrepreneur. So I, I, so my buddy recommended me to a coaching entrepreneurial coaching program called strategic coach, you know, mm. started by Dan Sullivan, who I, and I, I think you're aware of it, Corey. Yes. No, uh, no, I'm actually not. I should oh, okay. not in my head, but I'm not aware of that. It's worthwhile to take a look at. And so I looked at the price tag and I thought, that's pretty expensive. But I took the plunge and 26 years later, 25 years later, sorry, uh, was the best investment I've made ever because it really mm. did get together on peer-to-peer -peer group learning and, you know, considerations that you should think about uh, as an entrepreneur, including time management. And so I'm not, a, I can't say I've, I've got it completely figured out, but I do try to block my days into what, you know, what coaches drilled into me called focus days. You know, 80% of the time is going to be on billable efforts or, or revenue type generating buffer days, which are things that get you ready for, you know, revenue production. So a day like today where I'm speaking with you and, and then getting ready for client meetings tomorrow, this would be so-called buffer day and then free days because it's really, really important 
to re-energize. I could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but I'm not going to be any good to my family or to myself or to my health and my teammates. And so, and so I've really tried hard over the years to adhere by those principles. But when I actually do, you know, show up to work, then I'm ready, which includes having a good morning routine, you know, taking care of yourself. And uh, I'm a fitness freak and, and love to uh, take care of it. Just give me lots of energy. So anyhow, I don't know if that answers your question, Corey, but that's, uh, that's kind of. A- yeah, it's certainly a start. Would you be able to quantify what you've built in any way? to give the listeners some perspective. And the, the reason why is I've got a perspective having seen what you've built. And, but what can we tell the listeners to give them some ideas of where you're at? So when I first started practice years ago in 94, and then I think our first year revenue was about, or my first year revenue was about, I think it was $200,000, which minus expenses, which there are a lot of them, didn't leave a lot in my pocket. Today, and there's been lots of hiccups and you know ups and downs over the years. And today, our firm revenue combined is about 25 million, uh, with about 80 teammates. So we're not huge, Corey, but you know because there's a lot bigger firms wow. out there. But by Canadian standards, you know, it would probably put us top 30 for sure. In the United States, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, anything so. in Canada is cute compared to the U.S. standards. <laughs> yes. But Kim, it's, you know, compared to the big four, who cares? Well, my thing, what I just really admire is you've built such a, a, an interesting business that is a very real going concern in a very difficult area of professional services. And and so congrats to you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. That's a testament to the team and partners I have as well. So, Yeah, excellent. And what do you think has been the biggest the biggest hurdle or setback or lesson you've learned in over your career of building this? I think the overall lesson, you know, to answer that part first is expect the unexpected, mm. you know, because there's lots of things thrown at you as mm. an entrepreneur and as a business builder and, and you just need to be ready. <laughs> like who yeah. would have predicted COVID, right? And all the ridiculous restrictions that were imposed on business owners. Mm. Who would have predicted that? For those that at least you know, we're disaster ready, you know, we're better prepared. Were we disaster ready? Well, in hindsight, we were somewhat, but we could have been a lot better. And so, but in terms of some of the lessons, or sorry, some of the things along the way that were real hurdles, you know, we've had lots of HR uh, struggles because it's really hard to find good people. I grow good people because there's a real big shortage of qualified lawyers and qualified accountants who practice in this space. Mm-hmm. So we've become a target, you know, of if we grow somebody, you know, these people, uh, our competitors love to poach from us. So that's a challenge. What else? You know, with growth comes leadership issues in terms of, you know, what worked in the old days doesn't work in the, you know, in the new days, especially with growth and progressive values being thrown at you by media and by what have you. So there's challenges that way as well. You know, the usual business issues, you know, cash flow because you're investing in practice group one at the detriment of practice group two. And you know, so, so cash flow is, is always a challenge and let new legislation and technology. And like, for example, chat GBT, <laughs> you know, if you listen to some talking heads, it's going to replace people like me and tomorrow. I think the better view is, is, hey, this is a pretty exciting new technology and tool. I don't go to, to the extremes of saying it's going to replace anything, but how can we use it mm-hmm. for the betterment of our clients? So those are, those are some things along the way, Corey. Yeah. It's, to be prepared for anything, to me, really comes down to a bit of a stoic approach and a stoic philosophy yeah. of looking and saying, you know, yeah. bad things are going to happen. And so let's not be surprised and walk into them with, you know, somewhat of a grace and a conviction that you will come out on the other side, perhaps even stronger. So I like your word stoic. Uh, and I'll use a immediate example today, walked into the office and we had a flood. <laughs> One mm. of our sinks somehow burst a pipe and 
you know, over a thousand gallons in our office. Well, wow. to a person, to a person that that would panic on something like that, you know, the world is falling, uh, or sorry, the sky is falling. Well, you know, it's all right. This isn't so good. How are we going to make it better? You know, and well, the, the restoration people came in quickly, and yeah, you know, down the hall over here yeah. now, we got the the heaters going and you know drying things out. So yeah. You know what? Tomorrow's another day. The sun will rise. And if it does rise and you see the sunrise, it's like, wow, this is a good day. Yeah. I've got another chance to make a positive impact. And that's the way I look at it as a leader is, hey, if I'm so damn fortunate to see the sunrise, excellent. It's going to be a good day no matter what's thrown at me. Yeah, that's uh, oh. I wonder if we can weave this into the discussion, and I just want to be mindful of your time, Kim, of your work with, well, you do, I think, a lot of charity work and foundation work, but can we talk about the Aristotle Foundation and what you're doing there? It's the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's, it's something that was started by some prominent Canadians. I'm very fortunate to be part of that group. You know, one guy in particular... There are two people in particular. Well, actually, they're all so. But I'll just throw you some names: uh, Jack Mintz, you know, preeminent economist in Canada, very well known worldwide. Uh, Mark Milkey, who's a public policy expert, and then some others uh, who I should probably name, but we don't have time. But you know, we're really concerned about some, hmm. you know, the narrative that comes out on things like cancel culture. You know, we hmm. want to change the names of schools. You know, Sir John A. Macdonald, who is hmm. preeminent Canadian who founded Canada. And if it wasn't for him and his efforts, we wouldn't have the Canada that we have today. But because of his involvement with residential schools, you know, he's a bad guy and we got to change the name, anything to do with him and tear down statues. So that really got a lot of us thinking that, what the hell is going on? And so, and a lot of progressive things, you know, you know, apparently I'm privileged because I'm a white male, I'm heterosexual. I'm Christian and, you know, I'm, (laughs) and so those kinds of narratives really are quite shallow with no historical context, but they ultimately serve purpose, including diversity, equity, inclusion, that kind of uh, nonsense. And those purposes are to tear down meritocracy. And so this foundation think tank that we started was to ultimately provide contextual and historical context to some of the lazy narrative that's out there today, like cancel culture, and and provide that context and history to our youngsters, who unfortunately are being bombarded with nonsensical crap. And if they were to be fed some better narrative and better context, then maybe their decisions and, and their life might be a lot better. That's the That's the context of why we started this. And Really excited about what we're going to do. We just got started uh, recently. Excellent. Yeah. And so I want to actually discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. Go uh, for it. And so here's the reason why we recently had a female entrepreneur out of the US speak with us. And, and I said to her, she's black for context. And I said to her, I feel like it's a minefield, me stepping in and asking you anything about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because being a, you know, white middle-aged male, it's like, you know, no, you just have to listen is kind of the impression I feel for myself. But in our conversation, we ended up somewhere where I really started to see a bit of what she was saying and and start to understand it. When it comes to diversity and inclusion, to me, the way I'd like to frame it up is if we have a basketball court and... If you say to people, to certain people, like, we just don't even offer you the opportunity to come courtside to demonstrate if you've got the merit to be here or not, then then we have something in our system. We're not providing opportunity to everybody. But it's still, if you're getting on the court and you're going to be on the team, you need to demonstrate your merit. You just don't get on the team because of, you know, you check some boxes of, of a minority. You have to demonstrate your merit. But I could see where she was coming from when it comes to the point that if we have barriers which limit certain people's ability to even get to the court side to say, hey, I could fill that spot, we have an issue. And I think it's a topic worth discussing. I don't disagree with that point of view whatsoever. 
where I get troubled by it is all of a sudden, if, and you already kind of mentioned this, if you're ticking the boxes mm. and by ticking those boxes, you're taking away meritocracy, you know, we should be filling the seats with the best qualified people, regardless of race or skin color or any sort of identity politics whatsoever. That's mm. where I get fussed. And I think a lot of, a lot of people get fussed by that. And so, you know, I mentioned this, <laughs> I mentioned this in a conversation, a private conversation. I said, in my view, meritocracy is blind to skin color and to religion and to uh, sexual preference. And, and, oh my God, the person I talked to said, how dare you say that? I said, what, why? Well, because what you're doing is you're, when you say that you're ignoring, you know, the fact that there's lots of places which don't provide that opportunity of meritocracy. And the conversation ended up like yours, very positive because I do agree that if there are organizations or, or places in society where, you know, an identifiable group cannot participate because of that identity, then that's a problem in my mm-hmm. opinion, and it's worthy of discussion. But I can tell you in every organization that I have been involved with, including my firm, we don't even look at, and frankly, I don't care what sexual preference they are. If I was to walk down the hall today, I'll guarantee you that, you know, we're represented on sexual preferences and race and immigrants and, you know, left wing, right wing, although admittedly, when you're dealing with entrepreneurs, you're going to have more right of center than, than left. So I truly believe that as long as there, those barriers are not there, yeah. then you should be trying to build a meritocracy. And I'm pretty passionate about that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah. It's, I think these are conversations that I hope come to the fore much more and that people can start to recognize that there's a difference between constructive and destructive dialogue when it comes to these kind of things. And that we actually should be, and I know this is cliche, but celebrating our, our, our similarities versus just trying to find the differences. And, and totally. Yeah. Like as an example, just to digress for two seconds here, you know, I live in Calgary and the university of Calgary is a great university and we actually support it, but they recently had a job posting in one of their faculties for a Dean or a senior position, I think it was Dean. And basically the only people that could apply were people of color. And I'm oversimplifying a little bit. And I look at that and I say, that's an example in my view. And I actually did call a number of deans who I'm close with over there and say, are you guys serious about this? Because that's pretty ridiculous. Because yeah. you're checking boxes here, right? You're not putting the best person in the right spot. That, to me, is an example of where diversity, equity, inclusion goes way too far. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's worthwhile having these conversations. And, you know, I'm sure that there's enough people out there who would like to, you know, roast us over what we've just said here. But at least we're we're bringing it up. Yeah, Bring it on. Now, as we aim to wrap up, how about some books or podcasts or media that you consume that both inspires and informs you anything that that fills your brain other than the tax act <laughs> there's lots but I'll, I'll mention a few that come to the top of my head joseph frankel man's search for meaning without doubt one of the best books i've ever read you read it i have it on my kindle and it's a definite must read but i have not read it yet uh, read it it is it's an amazing read you know so that's number one Number two. Yeah. I just want to add context there. It's, it was written by, if I'm not mistaken, he was a psychiatrist, psychologist psychiatrist. who was interned. Yes. And interned in the, in Auschwitz or in the concentration yeah. camp and took that experience to write what is probably one of the most powerful books ever written. I think so. And I'm embarrassed that it was only in the last five years that I've read it. And, hmm. you know, a friend of mine, uh, we read it together and we compared notes and, and I was floored when I read it. So instead of the usual memorial experience books about Auschwitz, it was written, like you said, about what were the differences between the people that came into the camps and, and survived or survived longer versus the ones that just immediately died. Well, and the distinction were, mm. was the people that came in and created a purpose or had a purpose survived. And, you know, during COVID when people were stuck in their homes and, you know, I saw that, you know, the, where's the purpose? Yes. Where's the distinction between work and life and, or, and so it's an amazing book. 
No, I don't want to demean the book or detract from it in any way, but I want to tie this into entrepreneurship Absolutely. and the purpose in which small business and entrepreneurship brings to a society. It gives us purpose. Whether you're the one writing the paychecks or you're one of the employees who's helping build that small business, I you know, it, it is what gives people purpose. And so no question for whatever that is. Well, no question. And to me, they need to be entrepreneurs. I call them job creators. They need to be celebrated. And frankly, historically they have been, Hmm. but it's only been, you know, yeah, certainly in Canada in the last 10 years, they haven't been celebrated. Instead, they've been attacked regularly. So anyhow, that's a conversation at a time. Hmm. On terms of the leadership, you know, there's no shortage of leadership gurus out there. You know, I really liked following during his career, and I followed it quite early. Uh, was was Steve Jobs? A lot of uh, I loved the the stuff that he did. Simon Sinek, I think, is one of today's. I love his teachings, and they're so simple, but so powerful. And the way that he delivers his messages online and in his books is very powerful because it's so simple. Interesting. That is a little surprising because I find him to be definitely on more on the liberal side yeah. or more on the, the left of the left of the aisle, but he that is. or when it comes down to it. He he certainly is, especially with his book, his latest book. I can't remember what it's called now. Pretty left leaning in the whole scheme of things. But I do find at least his passion for people to be admirable and sir, his concept of building a purpose. You know, build an organization with a purpose. Start with why. You know, that to me is pretty powerful because it goes back to Joseph Frankel, right? Purpose. What is your purpose? What's your, so Simon Sinek, I really hold in high regard. You know, there's a number of other ones, but those uh, two come to mind. Oh, the Atomic Habits fellow, James Clear. I don't know if you read Atomic Habits. Brilliant book. Love James, that book. And I subscribe to his uh, newsletters and websites and learn lots from him, so. Those come to mind immediately. Right on. Thank you. We're just nearing the hour here. Any final thoughts for us, Kim? Final thoughts? Well, I'm not sure. You kind of caught me with my guard down. But I would, uh, in terms of, you know, policy matters, I guess, is what I tell my students all the time. You know, don't fall for the easy. uh, Actually, I'll end it maybe on this. (laughs) Take the time to actually read and understand. And uh, in today's, you know, sound bites and, you know, 140 characters, which uh, for Twitter, I, I find that's really lacking. Here's a closing example that I'll use or for, for some thoughts. One of my colleagues, a young lawyer, really bright, bright young lawyer, actually has a PhD in, from, from overseas in, in law. So very, very bright. And, and I asked her to do a little bit of research on a particular topic. And, and brief me. So I get back this email with a link to something and the phrase TLDR is on it. She said, uh, <laughs> she said, TLDR, blah. Well, thankfully I have some kids, so I know what TLDR means. Do you know what TLDR means, Corey? Too long, didn't read. Exactly. How do you think that went over with me? <laughs> I'm curious. It's a, yeah. You tell us. I mean, I was, to a certain extent, a little, I think she sent it to me in, in kind of jest because she knows me and that I don't have a lot of patience for that kind of stuff. And so I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. But in a nutshell, I said, you ever do that again, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> because in today's society, you know, where information is, you can get information anywhere. And Google's made that very, very easy. Chat GPT's made that even easier. You know, the ability to actually think and come to some very, you know, to think and logically put together some in-depth thoughts and responses on what's happening in our society today, you know, you need to do that. Um, So I get really frustrated and I think I'm swimming upstream, my frustration, because this, you know, the the TLDR mentality is out there in a big way. But I would encourage your listeners and certainly anybody around me to take the time, read the articles, become educated on topics rather than just being educated by Twitter. I appreciate that. And Kim, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're very busy and I'm glad we could reconnect. Yeah, it was a real pleasure, Corey. I hope, hope this is useful. Oh, it certainly will be. All right. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.